Welcome to the Life and Times Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is Episode 5, FIFA 3DO. Few entertainment franchises today, games or otherwise, can match the mindshare and profitability of EA Sports' FIFA Soccer. Last year's installment, FIFA 17 for instance, was the best-selling console game of 2016 despite it only being available for the final few months of the year. And that was no anomaly. FIFA sells tens of millions of copies worldwide, year after year. And these days, it even makes a yearly cameo on the best-sellers list in the United States. A country that thinks football is a sport played by huge men in body armor and helmets, wrestling and running into each other while occasionally trying to catch an egg-shaped ball that some other dude throws across a field. Or at least that's how non-Americans like me think of American football. There was a time when video game approximations of association football, or soccer as it's also known, were popular on the global stage alone. And a time when such games were fun diversions, not training aids or sophisticated simulations or large-scale competitive sports in their own right, all of which you could argue that both FIFA and its arch-nemesis Pro Evolution Soccer are today. There was a time when soccer simulations effectively went to America to die, when the only sports games with a fighting chance of success in the American market were tennis, golf, and licensed tie-ins to the country's biggest sporting leagues, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and the MLB. And that time wasn't so long ago. To get where we are now with the FIFA video game franchise, a franchise that is perhaps the biggest in the world, except maybe Call of Duty and maybe Grand Theft Auto. To get where we are now took four key moments more than 20 years ago. I'm going to focus here on the last of those, but first I need to tell you about the other three. Trip Hawkins was marketing director in Apple Computer's Lisa division in 1982 when he saw an opportunity to create a video game publishing company that champions its developers as rock stars, as superstar practitioners of a new interactive art form. He left Apple and founded Electronic Arts, or EA for short, with some of his friends from Apple and other companies in the computer industry. They had a few groundbreaking early hits. There was Bill Budge's pinball construction set, Dan Bunton's Mule, Eric Hammond's basketball game Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one, and Interplay's dungeon-crawling role-playing game The Bard's Tale. But Trip Hawkins had a bigger dream than just a successful games company. He wanted to change how sports games were played to combine the thinking and decision-making and strategy and tactics of the real thing with the excitement of watching sport on TV.
One-on-one -on -one was the first game to license the likenesses of professional athletes, and its glowing reception gave Tripp the confidence to push on with his dream. The two-player street-style basketball game starring two of the biggest names in the sport was a great start, but they needed to go further. EA soon expanded its sports game roster with golf and baseball simulations, and in 1988, after four years of failed attempts to complete the project, they released John Madden Football for the Apple II, the first gridiron simulation that you could directly control with full 11-player teams on the field. That then led to their journey onto game consoles and to the formation of the EA Sports brand. With a Sega Genesis version of Madden and then an ice hockey simulation called NHL Hockey. These quickly climbed the best sellers lists on both the Genesis and the Super Nintendo, and annualized sequels only further solidified the company as kings of this emerging home console sports game space in North America. They had achieved Tripp's dream of transforming sports games, at least on a, a basic level. They had refocused the market on TV-style realism, and over the first half of the 1990s, they swept up licensing deals for nearly everything. Players, teams, stadiums, leagues, they even had organ music and crowd chants and other digitised versions of things you might hear on TV. Although full-blown commentary wouldn't be possible until the PlayStation era. If it's in the game, it's in the game, their tagline went. And they meant it. But for all of their successes and triumphs in the domestic home console space, EA Sports remained largely unknown internationally. Their Madden and NHL games may have been huge in the United States, but they barely registered a blip outside North America. And their basketball and baseball titles weren't exactly grabbing attention in the UK and Europe. Outside of North America, the only sport video game that counted was one that involved the round ball version of football. The international audience favoured soccer management games like Player Manager and non-management games like Sensible Soccer and Kickoff. But EA Sports had never made a soccer game before they began development on FIFA International Soccer, a game that nobody thought would succeed. It had been an uphill battle just to get it greenlit. At one point, EA's European office convinced the company needed to make a round-ball football game, did some market research, and put together a case for soccer being the only way for the burgeoning EA Sports brand to make any headway in Europe. Development duties on the game ended up in the hands of EA Canada who adopted an isometric perspective that lent the game an instant wow factor that stood it apart from the competition, most of which was using a, a top-down kind of bird's-eye view of the field. EA Canada and Europe worked closely together to get the game polished and to start discussions about licensing deals for player and stadium likenesses in future versions. In this version, they named the players after EA Canada staff. FIFA built up loads of positive hype in the UK, but still the expectation from EA's top brass was of total failure. The game came out in December 1993 with official sales projections of 290,000, and it ended up at half a million copies just in that month, 
all told, this first FIFA game ended up with around 600,000 copies sold. That success had produced a kind of Goldilocks effect for the team that made it. They'd proven the case for an EA Sports soccer title. There would definitely be more FIFA games, but at the same time, they were still small enough to have the freedom to experiment. Here's Mark Orbanel, who was assistant producer on that first FIFA, and who now took on the day-to-day management of the team. So we had a mildly, you know, cool success, and we had one of the teams came off the game, and we got some 3DO dev kits. Okay, a quick primer on the 3DO. Electronic Arts founder Trip Hawkins left the company in 1991 specifically to make the 3DO, which was a CD-based game console with 3D graphics capabilities that would then launch in late 1993, a year before the similarly equipped Sega Saturn and Sony PlayStation consoles hit Japan, and two years before they launched worldwide. So the 3DO was essentially two years early to what they call the 32-bit generation. The 3DO was a hugely ambitious idea and an amazing piece of technology, but it also cost 700 US dollars. And as a result, it would wind up only selling around 2 million units over three years. To put that in context, the Sega Genesis sold 31 million or so, and the Super Nintendo managed 49 million. So we started to fool around with the dev kits, and we made a prototype. Probably within, I'd venture, yes, two or three weeks. We had taken FIFA from a fully 2D game. It was an isometric, sprite-based 2D game with uh, lock cameras, of course, right? And put it to a 2.5D game. So we had a, a, a single green surface with no field lines or anything on it, no net, no stadium, with 3D cameras and uh, 2D players uh, billboarded. And that ended up how we ended up shipping the game in the end. But we basically are Sega Genesis players, and they look like these pixelated, you know, these were 32 by 32 pixel players, sort of blown up on the 3DO running around. We had a prototype within two weeks, and everyone loved it. People went crazy for the prototype. So I'm not sure if the company would have actually said, hey, guys, make a game. I think we just got really lucky. We got our hands on a prototype. We came up with a really compelling demo. And people just said, hey, let's, you know, let's make FIFA 3DO. Did you think that the 3DO was going to be a success? No, I don't think anyone did. It was kind of a favorite trip to support his platform. I think it was, if it was anyone else, I don't think he would have made those games. If it was just some random company, you know, I'm not sure they would have, I, I'm not sure we would have done it. But I think there was a lot of, you know, uh, a friendship built between Larry and, and Trip. Larry is Larry Probst, who stepped up to CEO when Trip Hawkins left. So I think they were happy to do limited support. Mm-hmm. What was the vision that you had at the game? 3D. <laughs> so that's simple, right? Like we we want to we want to move from you're really constrained for a soccer game in two dimensions because uh, even with the isometric view, you don't always see. If I could draw it on a screen, the net's often out, out, off frame in a very key part where you're attacking. 
and you're building pressure and passing the ball and you can't even see the opponent's net or where the goalie is, right? Because he's just not on the camera and there's nothing you can do because you're stuck in that 2D view. So to be able to have the camera where we could now, instead of just following the ball, we could triangulate between the ball, the net, and maybe whatever the AI thinks is someone that you should think about passing to, one of your teammates, then you can start framing the shot and actually showing the person what they need to see or what the AI thinks they need to see. And that was just an absolute revelation for FIFA because we, we were super handcuffed in the 2D game. Like the, in fact, we had to make hacks to the AI so people would be on camera. So really the player shouldn't be standing where he's standing in the game based on how people would normally play soccer, but they're standing there because it's the only place you can see the crazy dude, right? Because he's off screen. He doesn't exist in the game. And in a real soccer game, you just turn your head. you got peripheral vision. You can you know, keep track of where everyone is. Whereas in this 2D lock camera view, you're stuck. Like you, you only, what's on this TV screen is the only thing that exists. Anything outside of that screen, you're just taking a wild guess. So having that 3D camera completely changed the game. You know, the camera before was just follow the ball, right? That's all you could do. Uh, and keep the ball in the center of the screen or maybe lead the ball a bit so that if you're attacking the balls at the back of the screen so you could see more uh, in the forward position. But in the uh, 3D game, you could, 3D, we started to put AI in the camera, right? Like, what should the camera be looking at? What are you doing? Are you attacking? Are you defending? What's the most important thing for you to see, right? And most of the time, it's, well, your goal, whether it's your own goal or the opponent's goal, is you, you want to be able to make sure you know what's happening around there. Whereas the first FIFA game and every other football game on the market offered just one fixed camera angle, which again was in FIFA's case isometric and kind of angled down slightly towards one of the goals and in most other games was a bird's eye view. FIFA 3DO instead had seven set camera angles that you could choose from during play. And then in the replays, you had the option of a 360 degree free cam mode. You could get right into the thick of the action with the ball cam viewpoint or maybe zoom way out with the stadium cam or the cable cam or if you wanted a more tv-like experience you had a telecam that tracked across the pitch roughly in line with the ball and there was a sideline view that actually shifted between multiple camera angles in the same kind of way that televised football does and i think we probably had if, if I went back and played it now, I think we probably had way too much fun with it, right? You can sort of see it was a bunch of people who had finally been able to do 3D after years of doing 2D games, right? So we probably went a bit over the top, would be my guess. But yeah, we enjoyed that freedom as much as we could. That was fun. The thing that struck me as, as really over-the-top indulgent was every time there's a goal scorer, um, the camera will go from wherever it is and it will, it will swoop around, go up to the scoreboard, show the replay and then swoop back down and turn and <laughs> go back into the original position. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what we were trying to take, we were trying to take advantage of that as much as we could. I mean, the, the interesting thing was the AI was still two dimensional. So even though we'd gone from a 2D game to a 3D game, we only stored an X, Y position for the ball. We hacked in Z So we didn't have time to rewrite. The AI only understood a 2D world, X, Y coordinate system, right? So for 3D, we never were able to do a 3D game. It was only the, I think it was only the next version on PlayStation 1 where we had made a 3D AI. 
So even though it looked 3D or 2.5D, right? Because the players were still 2D. The AI was the same system as the Genesis version. So how do you make the 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 Z system, how do you make the ball go up in the right ways? Uh, completely hard-coded. So we did not physically calculate an arc. We just stored values in a an array. So the ball would, if you watch the game, the ball would always be kicked in the exact same way every time. Whereas in the other versions of FIFA, we would have some, you know, sludge in the physics. So the ball could arc a little bit, maybe uh, and not go in exactly the right position. And we could play around with it. But in that one, it was just a data lookup table, right? It was just fixed ball positions. So we sort of hacked it in by, it was hard, all hard-coded. That wasn't the only shortcut they needed to work in to deal with the limitations of the 3DO's processing power and with their inexperience dealing with three-dimensional physics systems. They also had to figure out a way to make animations look right when the goalkeeper is catching or parrying the ball away. So in FIFA 3DO, we morphed the ball to goalie. So if the AI goes, the goalie is going to save. We, you would so you'd have a x y you'd have a, 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 a an angle that the ball is traveling through with a with a force applied to it right and you would redirect that angle so it would match where the player's goalie's hands are going to be in ten frames so literally swerve the ball to hit the goalie's hands that way you didn't have to figure out what the goalie had to do in three dimensions to get to the ball it was easier to fool the user into uh, uh, morphing the ball than it was morphing the goalie. But always looked kind of silly and hacky because you would have these ridiculous leaps. And (laughs) we have a much better understanding of human physics than we do say of a ball, right? And a ball can do really strange things with wind and spin and how it's kicked and how it hits the grass. So you can get away with kind of murder with the ball, right? And people will kind of let it go. But you monkey with goalie physics and people go, hey, that's not right. The tricks worked well. It's barely noticeable, even when you're looking for it, that the ball is not following its natural path into the goalkeeper's hands. And in spite of the game's many not-quite-3D elements and fudged physics models, reviewers praised the graphics as a great leap forward. Even the influential and infamously hard-to-please Edge magazine called its animations acceptably lifelike and said that with the telecam mode, you could almost be watching a real televised match. FIFA 3DO was hardly groundbreaking as a simulation of the mechanics of football, the way teams pass the ball around to create gaps in their opposition's defence, or the many different techniques that players use to strike the ball, or any other elements of the real artistry of the sport. The FIFA series wouldn't actually become known for innovation in these areas until the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 era of game consoles, more than a decade later. But nevertheless, even more so than its isometric Sega Genesis predecessor, FIFA 3DO would come to transform video game soccer. Within a few years, it would be expected 
that the soccer game include multiple camera angles, smooth animation, dynamic stadiums, fully controllable action replays, and realistic crowd noises. In FIFA 3DO's case, the sounds were sampled from the 1994 World Cup, by the way. It's perhaps no surprise then that Mark considers FIFA 3DO to be his proudest moment in a 13-year career at EA, a career that resulted in around 50 published games and more than a billion dollars in combined revenue. Uh, we were really under the radar in terms of there's something about making a game when no one cares about you making that game. Like There's a lot of pressure in game development. They're very expensive to make. They're huge capital expense and people are constantly nervous that you're not going to make your ship date and there's a lot of stress on being a dev team i'm sure you read about killer hours that game developers work right and most of the stories are pretty true it's stressful making a game 3d was this unique opportunity where no one really thought the platform was going to do anything we were doing it to appease trip hawkins so it wasn't really that real severe pressure of the weight of the company saying you guys have to succeed. You know, this has to be a huge success. So we had a lot of freedom to kind of take some chances and some risks with things that we never, you know, I don't know if we could have done a 3D game at that point in time, done that game as we did it with the normal pressure and scrutiny you would get on a game where every decision you make would get questioned about, are you going to, you know, are you going to finish on time? Going 3D put huge risk in the schedule, huge risk. And since no one really thought much about the success of the video, they kind of let us do it, right? Like, so we got away in a sense with a, with a lot more than I got away with on any other title of the game. And that's freeing, right? Like to suddenly not have all of this really conservative, like second guessing and, you know, should we do this? Should we take this chance? Should we spend this money on it? It was kind of freeing. We just got to do, we just got to make a great game. Yeah. And unfortunately you can't say that all the time, right? Like it's really tough when, you know, especially nowadays where FIFA is just this several hundred million dollar beast, right? Like a big mistake is colossal financially to the company now. And back then it was a smaller deal, right? So it was much more freeing in the early days of FIFA than in the latter days when, you know, we were making 60, 70, 80 million per release. Every decision got scrutinized at that point. Way less fun to make FIFA in 2002 than it was when we made 3DO. Did the 3DO the, the challenges that Dio had to, to overcome in, in making this 2.5D 3DO game, uh, did they help much with uh, the transition to actual 3D? Oh, absolutely. Massively. That was a huge... We were way ahead of NHL and NBA. We were done in the same studio in Vancouver. It was enormously educational. It kicked our ass. Like That game really showed us 3D is hard. It's not just one third harder <laughs> because we're adding a Z axis. It was exponentially harder, right? That was squaring the problem of making a soccer game. So we went in with our eyes wide open on PlayStation 1. That was a huge, huge boon. I think that's why we had really good success in the early PlayStation 1 days when other companies, even Capcom, was struggling in those early versions. Not Capcom, Konami, Pro Evo Soccer. The transition to 3D was a complete overhaul of game development. More than just a programming and design challenge, it also required a considerable change in working practices on the outside. 
FIFA 3DO turned out to be an important stepping stone for Electronic Arts, which had previously done all of its art in Deluxe Paint, a professional pixel-based graphics and illustration suite. Deluxe Paint, or D-Paint for short, was made in-house by Electronic Arts, so it cost nothing for them to make their art until this 3D transition. I think my boss almost had a heart attack when we said, well, we're going to have to render these characters in 3D using soft mods. They ran on silicon graphics hardware. You know, our first uh, silicon graphics machine was 30 grand with $20,000 soft mask software on the top. $55,000 we went from spending nothing on an artist to 55 grand. So um, that was a big change. Again, that was another one where, you know, maybe we might not have been able to do the game, but miraculously they came through and bought us. Uh, 3D hardware to, to, to make the game. And of course, when we went to PlayStation 1, the whole studio started to get solar graphics they were all over the studio. But that was a big cultural change at that time. I think the other thing that happened was it, it, every time you have a major technological shift like 2D to 3D, people get left in that transition. Programmers needed to be really strong in mathematics to be able to transition from the simple XY coordinate system of the old days to a fully 3D system with complex physics simulations. Today, we're at a point where the technology has so advanced that sports games have to get weirdly specific about their innovations. FIFA 18's marketing material champions its authentic sun positions, its on-pitch debris, and individual crowd reactions, meaning that if you're paying close enough attention, you might notice that there's that one guy in the crowd telling you how much you suck when you miss an opportunity. It also pushes frame-by-frame -frame animation fidelity that's meant to make the game both more responsive and fluid, as well as more in line with the intricacies of how the world's most famous footballers move. And it has teammates darting forward when they think there's a chance for a through ball. And apparently each team plays just like its real-life counterpart. Soccer games and sports games in general are no longer about fun. And arguably they haven't been for a long time. But the goal now is authenticity. I actually counted the word authentic seven times in the FIFA 18 product overview. And I found it at least once in the product descriptions for several other popular sports titles. What matters in sports games now is how much they resemble the sport as it appears on TV. And how much they make the player feel like they are their sporting heroes. And I think we've lost something of the heart of the old days in this endless quest for realism. We've lost the joy of a sport stripped down to its barest fundamentals. Mark says that the key difference is that as much as EA made a song and a dance about TV-like presentation, back in the 90s there was no way to fool you visually into thinking this was real. We just focused on making a really fun mechanic. That was really all we could do in those days. Really, you had uh, uh, Genesis cartridge was a meg and a half, right? We had uh, 12 megabits or one and a half megabytes to make a game. So you really boiled everything down to, well, let's make the game more fun. Every decision was put through the filter of, is this going to make it more fun? And then 
it sort of switched as we got more and more graphics to it. Let's make it look more real. Let's make it look more real. So yeah, I could easily say that I think some of my favorite sports games are the early Madden's, the early NHL's, the early FIFA's. And then they all lost something when they went photorealistic, right? It's not, it's no fault of the dev teams. I don't think it's, I don't think they're doing anything wrong. I, I think it's just, again, you know, what was in, what, what you could show off in a computer at that time was, you know, the potential of just creating a really simple, fun mechanic. And now it's so complex, right? Like now the AI is so sophisticated, it's doing such fancy stuff that, you know, I think that simplicity is what adds to the charm of those games. I mean, at the end of the day, if it is as hard to play a soccer game as it is to play real soccer, it would take years to become a, you'd have to practice four hours a day, right? Six hours a day, become a really good video game soccer player. Um, so there's something, there's something inherently strange about the, craft of designing a sports game right if you're trying to design it to be as believable and as realistic as possible but you don't want any of the effort you don't want a person to put in the effort it takes in an nfl player or a soccer player to put in to getting good at it right so there's a paradox there These days, Mark works at Louisiana State University as the director of digital media arts and engineering, where he's helping to train the next generation of game makers. He led the FIFA team through the transition to 32-bit consoles and then into the early PlayStation 2 era. His final involvement with the series was as executive producer on the special World Cup edition of FIFA 2002. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, arranged, and produced entirely by me. With additional music this week from Lee Rosevere, Androsik, and Revolution Void. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It'll be a huge help if you can leave a rating and review on iTunes and share this episode on social media. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and now also Instagram, at Life and Times VG. My personal Twitter is MossRC. If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help me get the show to a point of long-term sustainability or just to help me make it better, head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon. I also now accept one-off donations via PayPal, so if you've got a few bucks lying around and want to sound your appreciation, you can send a payment via paypal.me slash mossrc and you can find links to everything mentioned here through the website lifeandtimes.games Coming up next time I'll be looking at the early days of ROM hacking and fan translations and sharing the story of one particular group that was there pretty much from the very beginning and that provided the missing link for a few fan favorite role playing games My name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. See ya.